Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Peretz Partensky. We'll be discussing his piece for Wired entitled, To Beat the Coronavirus, Raise an Army of the Recovered. Among us, there's a growing population of those who, whether they know it or not, have been infected and recovered from SARS-CoV-2. These people are a vastly underappreciated resource. Their privileged immune state makes them ideal candidates for a hopeful concept, the Corona Corps, a civilian force that may be able to fill in gaps in public services, insulate vulnerable from infection, help map spread of the virus, and give our medical system room to breathe. More on the Corona Corps in a bit. And speaking of recovered, in the last part of the show, Dr. Cosmo Milky is here to talk to us about his work with Quarantine at Home, which lets you donate your spare computer power to help find drugs to target SARS-CoV-2. But first... Zoom, a hugely popular teleconferencing application, has been found to have inferior encryption and, according to researchers, has been sending user information to China. The latest revelations do not have that much of an effect on users who only use the site to socialize over the Internet, although they too may have reservations about having their data misused. But the news is particularly troublesome for government officials who have been using the app to conduct official business. Michael Lee, a journalist with The Intercept, speaks to Digital Village reporter Leilani Elbano on the topic. How safe is it to use Zoom, and should governments be using the popular app to conduct official business? How safe Zoom is really depends on your use case, and this is true with a lot about computer security. If you are just trying to socialize during the pandemic, Zoom is totally fine for that, to like see friends and things, but let's say you are conducting very sensitive business or dealing with government secrets, or maybe you are activist that's wanted by your government, then it's not quite as safe as I would hope it would be. Well, we also just don't have a choice, right? Because there aren't that many alternatives out there. Yeah, there are not that many alternatives. There are some alternatives, but none of them have the features that Zoom have. It's very hard to have a very secure video conference with a lot of people, for example, and Zoom You could have Zoom calls with hundreds of people. So there have been reports that some of the encryption information has been going to China. Is it a fluke that Zoom is doing this, or does this raise some larger concerns about online programs with ties to China? Zoom says that this was a mistake to have users in the United States and Canada have their encryption keys going through China. They also say that that since researchers discovered that this was happening, that they've fixed the problem and this shouldn't be happening anymore. The way that this works is whenever you start a Zoom meeting, the meeting has an encryption key. It's basically a secret random number that's used for encrypting and decrypting, for scrambling the information. And a server in Zoom's cloud infrastructure generates this key, and some of those servers are in China. And so what Zoom says is that now only Chinese Zoom users are going to be using those servers in China, but users outside of China will be using servers in the United States. It definitely is a very big, serious issue because if parts of the video conferencing infrastructure like encryption keys or if the actual content of the calls that people are having are going through China, then it's possible that Zoom could be legally compelled to share this information with Chinese officials. Do you accept their explanation? 
They say that the fact that encryption keys were going through China was a mistake and totally see that happening as a mistake. Like what, like what their rationale was, was that coronavirus hit China first and they started getting a lot of new uh, remote people having to work from home in China first. And so they had to scale up all their infrastructure in China first and put a ton of new servers there. And then once they started scaling up the rest of the world, some of the Chinese servers were accidentally still being used. And I think that that's like a reasonable explanation, but it, it definitely shows sloppiness. What is Zoom's significance during this whole COVID outbreak? Before this COVID outbreak, Zoom had about 10 million users, and now Zoom has about 200 million users. It's just been exploding in popularity. It's being used all over the world now in thousands and thousands of schools for people who are students in you know, elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, as well as universities. It's being used in businesses all over the place. It's also being used by a lot of government agencies. So I think this is one of the reasons why it's suddenly under such intense scrutiny is because now hundreds of millions of new people are relying on it. And a lot of times they're relying on it for very sensitive conversations. So for those who are not too familiar with Zoom, can you tell us how does it work and walk us through it? So the way that Zoom works is basically... Somebody starts a meeting. That person is called the meeting host. And when they start a meeting, Zoom, a server on their infrastructure, creates a new encryption key for the meeting. Then it sends that key to the meeting host. And then it also sends a copy of that key to all of the participants in the meeting. And then now that all these participants all have a copy of the same shared encryption key, all of the video and the audio is encrypted using this key. And anyone with this key can decrypt it. And if the Zoom, the company, didn't have access to the key, then it would actually be end-to-end encrypted. But they do. And in fact, some of the Citizen Lab researchers figured out the server that was generating an encryption key for at least uh, one of their calls was located in China. So then what is the waiting room? The waiting room is a security feature that Zoom has where instead of just joining a meeting and just getting like put in the meeting where you can start talking to people, you get put in something called a waiting room and somebody else in the meeting has to invite you in. And so the idea is if there's a meeting going on and somebody finds the the link to the meeting and tries to join it, if they are in the waiting room, they won't be able to just join it. And it's definitely one of the things that can help protect against Zoom bombing, for example. The Citizen Lab security researchers discovered a vulnerability in the waiting room which was basically that if you join the waiting room, the Zoom server that sends keys to all the participants sends you a copy of the of the encryption key for the meeting, even if you haven't been invited in yet. And then also you, your program on your computer gets a copy of all the video and the audio of the meeting, as well as the key. You just It, it just doesn't show it to you. But if you are sophisticated enough, you could actually join a meeting be stuck in the waiting room, but record all of this traffic and then decrypt it later and watch the meeting. So you could basically be like an invisible guest. Yeah, that, that, that was what the vulnerability is. And tell us about the encryptions themselves preserving pattern in the input. Right. So Zoom uses a type of encryption to encrypt the meeting video and the audio called the Advanced Encryption Standard, or AES. And this is a very common type of encryption. It's like kind of an industry standard and a lot of people use it. But you can use AES encryption in different modes. And they use a mode called the electronic codebook mode, which is a ECB. And 
when you use AES in ECB mode, it has a weakness that the other AES modes don't have. And so in an ideal situation, when you have a bunch of encrypted data, it should look completely random. You shouldn't be able to tell the difference between encrypted data and like static from the radio. But with ECB mode encryption, if there's patterns in the original data, then the patterns exist in the encrypted data as well. It's definitely a weakness. It's definitely a well-known weakness in cryptography, and there's much better ways of doing it. Like you had mentioned before, depending on your use of Zoom, like if you're just in an exercise class or you're meeting friends for a social hour, these things don't seem to be that important, but I can see how altogether these issues, especially with the encryption patterns, can be a concern for governments if they're holding official business on Zoom. I think that any type of meetings that are going on on Zoom that might be of interest to governments, that's kind of risky because governments like the U.S. government or the Israeli government or the Russian government or the Syrian government, they all have nation-state hackers who are able to do a lot of really sophisticated attacks. And I think that the way that Zoom currently works Zoom calls are are not secure for any of that. Also, let's just say if journalists were meeting on the site, that could pose issues. Absolutely. I work with uh, journalists all the time. I'm a journalist myself, and we routinely have to discuss things, and it's always safest to discuss things in person, but that's not really possible anymore because of social distancing. And so it's a real problem that a lot of people have because, you know, you have to discuss information about stories that haven't been published. You have to discuss information about documents that you're considering publishing and how to protect sources. And then also people are need to talk to sources themselves. And so Zoom is not the safest platform to do that either. What has been the response from Zoom? Because I understand it's been pretty positive. Yeah, Zoom's response has been a lot better than I was expecting it to be. They basically have made a complete about face and they've kind of been very open about how they were wrong. They like apologize for misleading everybody about end to end encryption and they're trying to do a bunch of new things to uh, regain user trust. Well, it's important for people uh, using Zoom to make sure that Zoom follows through and fixes its security glitches, is it really possible to fully secure any teleconferencing app? After all, don't all computer programs have backdoor capabilities? I wouldn't say that everything has a backdoor, but some things have a backdoor and everything has security bugs. And it's not really possible to be completely secure in anything that you do. But what is possible is to figure out what your threats are, who you're worried about intercepting your meetings, and try to do stuff to be secure against them. Another important thing to remember is that keeping your communications private, keeping your Zoom meetings private, is actually a much bigger problem than just Zoom can solve alone. Because in order to use Zoom, you need to have like a phone or a computer or something. And in order to keep your conversations private, you have to keep that device secure. So the ability to make it so that it's impossible for somebody to hack your computer is very, very difficult. And uh, I think that just in general, everybody practicing good security practices, like using disk encryption on your devices, updating all of your software, doing a really good job at managing passwords, like using a password manager and using different passwords for every site, using two-factor authentication when it's available. If you get into a habit of always doing this, then everything will be more secure in your digital life in general. 
and that will help make it harder for people to compromise any messaging apps or video conferencing system areas. That was Micah Lee, journalist for The Intercept, speaking with Leilani Albano, KPFK reporter for Digital Village. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, Dr. Peretz Pratensky is here to talk about an article he wrote for Wired entitled, To Beat the Coronavirus, Raise an Army of the Recovered. Listen to this. You wrote an op-ed for Wired entitled, To Beat the Coronavirus, Raise an Army of the Recovered. Could you explain how we get this army and what we should slash could be doing? I think that among us, there's a growing population of those who, whether they know it or not, have been infected and recovered from SARS-CoV-2. And these people are a vastly underappreciated resource. Their privileged immune state makes them ideal candidates for a hopeful concept, the Corona Corps, a civilian force that may be able to fill in gaps in public services, insulate vulnerable from infection, help map spread of the virus and give our medical system room to breathe. In the article, I argue that identifying the recovered and immune should be a national priority. And this comes down to, can you guess? Testing. The simplest technique for determining immunity is called a serological test. It's a test that detects antibodies from a drop of blood. And every drop of blood contains a history of your immune system's battles with invaders. The information is there. Antibodies are like specialized body armor that you make in response to a particular infection. And a positive result on this test is a good result. This test is different and should be seen as a complement to the swab-based SARS-CoV-2 RNA tests, which detects an ongoing or recent infection. Those tests still need ramping up. A serological test is part of the epidemiologist's arsenal. It can assess just how far a disease has spread through a population, typically after an infection has run its course. To use the test to identify the recovered and be able to say something meaningful about the nature and persistence of their immunity during a pandemic would be a novel use case. Understanding the true spread of the disease and the number of immune people has direct implications for rebooting the economy. In the article, you mentioned the phrase collective recovery. So, so what does that mean? Yeah, Brittany, I think that as an individual, having a sense that you've recovered and have less reason to fear reinfection is among the most welcome news you can expect during a pandemic. The question that I try to address is, what does it mean to have a hall pass in a pandemic? What does it mean if you are immune to a virus that is killing people and keeping most people at home? This is a question that an increasing number of individuals are asking themselves each day. If you're a healthcare professional or an essential worker, this news gives you the confidence to go back to work. But what about for the rest of us? Do we just go back to work and pretend that everything is normal? What if the job doesn't exist anymore? Does immunity come with responsibility? I think that as a society, we need to help map out the options for these people, where they can be most helpful. But the decision to volunteer for those positions should be left up to them. And of course, I'm happy to say that this is already happening in heartening and grassroots ways. For example, there's an amazing woman in New York, Diana Barrent, who was one of the first people to have been diagnosed and recovered. She started a group called Survivor Corps and is activating those recovered individuals, one of the most immediate ways for the recovered to help is by donating plasma. The same body armor that their immune system built to overcome the virus is being shared with others as medicine. A single recovered individual with protective antibodies can help heal two to three other people. That's amazing. It's turning the sick into the healers. Of course, the recovered can help with their flesh along with their blood. 
for example, by taking care of the most vulnerable populations or by providing childcare to essential workers. And the article spells out some more ideas. This is what I call the army of the recovered. And my terminology for it was the Corona Corps. What's interesting about this and that I think kind of irks some people is that you almost are creating a two caste system in a way of, of the immune and, and the potentially susceptible. Is there a moral dilemma that you see here? Yes, Brittany, the virus does divide us in many ways, more than just two. As you say, there's the immune and the susceptible, but also essential workers who have to go out and confront it and vulnerable populations that have the biggest reason to fear it. The good news is that these virus-based distinctions will eventually go away through herd immunity or a vaccine. Yet there are other inequities which are being laid bare by the virus, and those won't go away without our effort. These we have to witness and confront. There's been a lot of talk about immune certification, and obviously, as we have in a a population, as time goes on, more and more people get sick, and as we're seeing, more and more people are recovering. What about stories we're hearing, especially in Korea, and I think we've heard this from China as well, about people who've had the virus then testing positive again? Like, How does that come into play here? It remains to be seen if those cases reported in the media were true reinfections or just an extended cycle of clearing non-infectious viral RNA after recovery. But these are good and answerable questions, and we have the tools to answer them. It is important to note for everyone listening that the presence of immunity is not binary, and it doesn't necessarily prevent reinfection. What immunity does mean is that you start off with an advantage and you will likely recover faster and be less contagious to others. Back to immune certification. What about people who are healthy and intentionally want to get the virus, say get sick, recover, and then just go about their daily lives? This is an important consideration that I think belongs in a wider frame. As a society, we must take care of those in isolation so as not to create perverse incentive to become infected, to participate in a lucrative workforce, or sit out hungry and unemployed. The process of stratifying the population by immune status will take an emotional toll. The project I outline entails the creation of different classes of people with different privileges, the immune, the vulnerable, the frontline healthcare workers, the herd. While most are isolated, some are mobile. We need to anticipate and diffuse the tensions this will create. If we do this right, there is potential to diffuse this tension by giving us a narrative of celebrating the individuals, facilitating our collective recovery, rather than feeding a divisive resentment of the kids who sneaked out of detention. We must stand apart now so we can stand together in the future. What about people who worry about government agencies knowing their immunity status to the virus? What what do you think about that? Uh, On one hand, I see this voluntary certification as one of those organ donor dots we have on our driver's licenses. I acknowledge that those with a historical imagination may indeed shudder at the suggestion of immunity certification. It will bring to mind humans marked for nefarious purposes within a government-run caste system. But this is exactly the moment to redeem humanity, to atone for those sins of the past. Brittany, it's not other humans who divide us now. It's the virus. We must stand apart in order to stand together. Our bodies are being reconfigured into factories for making body armor for a raging war. And this is our choice. Do we use that capacity for the benefit of all? Or do we hide behind HIPAA, keeping the superpower of immunity private and protected? There's stories every single day, some of which which seem to contradict each other. One of the stories that's been going around is, well, maybe this could be a seasonal virus and it mutates quickly. And so it might become something like the flu where we have different strains every year. How would you see immunity working in this case? SARS-CoV-2 
is a novel virus, as you say, and the earliest recovered have been recovered for barely five months. We don't have empirical knowledge beyond this event horizon. We can only reason by analogy and inference. So by analogy to similar coronaviruses, it's reasonable to hypothesize that immunity will last one or two years for most of the recovered. All viruses mutate. And while some viruses manage to escape our immune system's response through mutation, most mutations do not impede an immune response. Luckily, we have the tools to track the mutations of the virus and the durability of the immune response. So this will be an ongoing question. In the article, you also mentioned creating a global adaptive immune system. What does that mean for this pandemic and maybe the next pandemics? Brittany, thanks for that question. I think the most powerful concept here is that humanity is a massively parallel supercomputer. Each of our billion immune systems confronts and solves challenges presented by invaders. Some immune systems come up with better solutions than others. The answers are in our bloods. Most of the time, we keep our immune systems private. During epidemics, we network our bloods. Social distancing on one hand and maximal intimacy on the other. I imagine a future where we continuously learn from the best-in-class immune solutions across humanity and network our immunity much like we deploy security patches to antivirus software. Life is practice for life. Pandemics are practice for pandemics. This is a test for every nation and humanity as a whole. How clever is our collective immune response going to be? Our grade will be assigned on the basis of lives saved, lessons learned, and the strength of our communities when we come out of this. That was Dr. Peretz Pertensky talking about his idea on how those recovered from COVID-19, the quote-unquote Corona Corps, can help us facilitate our collective recovery. It's important to note that, as Dr. Pertensky said, our information on the virus is continually evolving. Hypotheses we have today may be proven or disproven in the future. The World Health Organization has said that there currently isn't any evidence to suggest immunity, so we'll have to wait and see how this unfolds. In the last part of the show, Dr. Cosmo Milky is here. He's a computational biologist at UCSF, and he's here to talk about his work with Quarantine at Home. Listen to this. Could you tell me a little bit about what Quarantine at Home is? It's a distributed software inspired by the original SETI at Home and Folding at Home. But instead of focusing on looking for aliens or instead of focusing on folding proteins, which is what Folding at Home has done for the last 20 or so years, it specifically focuses on trying to find drugs to target the coronavirus. That is the chief focus. So I pulled out some old computational docking suites that I learned how to use in my PhD many years ago. Basically software that lets you take a virtual drug molecule and try to to bind it to a protein structure. And I took two different protein structures that were determined from COVID-19's virus and tried docking drugs against them. I'm targeting that spike protein on the virus that allows it to bind to human cells, trying to disrupt that binding interface. And I'm also targeting the main protease, which is the enzyme that kicks off the entire replication machinery once it gets inside your cell. So there's a database of potential drugs that you're using? There's a database of virtual drugs called Zinc. It stands for Zinc is not commercial. <laughs> it's a database run by two different labs here at UCSF, and it's got a billion different virtual molecules in it. What this software does is it downloads those three-dimensional coordinate files of those virtual drugs. And some of them are hypothetical drugs that have never been before made, and some of them are drugs that are FDA cleared. We know that they're safe in humans. It's a huge gamut of possible molecules. And what the software does is it takes those drugs and tries to find a way to dock them up against a coronavirus protein. 
And this software just runs in your computer, either Windows, Mac, or Linux, and it uh, gets assigned a set of drugs to, to screen against the COVID proteins, and then it tries to find the best way that these drugs can fit into the binding pocket of these proteins and compute the, the binding energy. So the stronger the binding energy of the drug, the less of that drug you're going to need in your cells in order to hopefully inhibit the virus's growth or, or spreading mechanism. So this software runs these simulations. It reports back to the server, hey, I, I found a hit. This drug binds to this specific COVID protein with this binding energy. The server coordinating the entire uh, effort collects all these results and floats the best possible drug hits to the top in a public leaderboard, basically, so that scientists all around the world can see that and follow those leads. So if, if a drug falls out as being a potential hit, other scientists are going to do their own separate simulations to confirm that hit. Hopefully labs around the world will start doing some actual biochemical screens of that drug at the lab bench to see if they inhibit the virus. There's a lot of potential here that, that relatively safe molecules that are either FDA-cleared drugs or even FDA-cleared supplements might have something to, to, to offer us in terms of benefit, but there really needs to be a lot of science done on top of this data to verify and validate these findings. If people are interested in finding out more, they can go to quarantine.infino, which is I-N-F-I-N-O dot me. Yeah, the, we, we, have, we have clients available for Windows, Mac, and Linux. Uh, for Windows and Mac, you just download the installers and run them, and it'll it'll run the software that'll do the drug uh, docking calculations and also give you a nice little visualization of the of the things that it finds and how they fit into the binding pockets of the proteins. Uh, it's all web-based. The, the website that we have that has the leaderboard has instructions right at the top of how they can join and, and, and uh, add their computer power to the pile. It's also completely open source, I might point out. So if anybody wants to look at the code, make it better, contribute to it, or even contribute experiments to it, we desperately need people to go in there. And if they have a particular protein that they want to target that's either coronavirus related or it's an important human protein that's relevant to the infection, those are other proteins that we can target. If anybody wants to contribute experiments to the platform, they can do that as well. And it's all up on GitHub. If people are feeling isolated at home and hopeless, I'm hoping that even even if this thing doesn't find a cure, it gives people hope. And it's it's that positive message of maybe we'll find something with with an approach like this that I think drives people. And I th I think that given given the horror of the situation that we're all currently living in, I think we all just need some hope to look forward to or something productive to do with our time. If running a screensaver, either quarantine at home or folding at home will do that and give people hope that maybe something good can come out of this, then then I think that that's worth pursuing. That was Dr. Cosmo Milky on Quarantine at Home, an effort to donate your spare computer power to help find drugs to target SARS-CoV-2. For more information, you can visit the website at quarantine.infino.me. We've covered a lot regarding COVID-19, how building an army of the recovered could be a way to help get the economy back on track while still protecting the vulnerable, and how Zoom has had some security issues scaling up with the increase in traffic due to stay-at-home orders. We'll get through this. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. Happy Earth Day, everyone. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can follow us on all things social as well using at Digital V Radio or on digitalvillage.org. 
A special thank you to contributor Leilani Albano. KPFK is 100% listener-sponsored. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Just go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll we'll see see you online. online.